In this God and Sexuality series, we seek to explore the intent of God's design in this wonderful gift of life and sexuality. Knowing that the ways of God in all things lead to flourishing, life, joy, and healing. In a time of Tinder, hookup culture, porn, gender fluidity, same-sex attraction, HBO, and the politicization of sex and all the gender debates, there are numerous voices clamoring to be heard on these topics. But at a deeper and more personal level, we know that our sexuality has incredible power to form us, power to bring health and flourishing, or pain and destruction. We are not looking to pick a fight with anyone, but rather show that any difference we may have most probably doesn't start with our beliefs on sexuality, but rather our beliefs on God and His intent and design for this world and its people. We want to create a place for all people to bring their whole lives, including their sexuality, to Jesus and let Him do the restoring work He needs to do. Now we will listen to the next installment of the God and Sexuality series. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you for having me here. Thanks for the invite. Uh, my name is Kyle, as Tim said. Uh, I come from Common Ground in Sea Point, but my wife and I, Michelle, were part of this community for many years. And hopefully to many of you, I'm a vaguely familiar face. Um, I've been around a couple of times um, since we've left. Um, let me just kick off by saying this morning, you might want to ask why I'm wearing a bright red Arsenal shirt. Two reasons. Number one, yes, you're welcome to cheer. You're welcome to cheer. Uh, two reasons. Number one, this morning I was told that my outfit blended into the back wall. Um, and not so, not so cool for the camera crew and the online people. So um, I thought, cool, I'll, I'll show you, number one. Um, second, I thought, on a, on a controversial night, why not just bring more controversy? And hence the Arsenal shirt. And I want Manchester United or anyone to know, really, just if Arsenal lose against Manchester United tonight, we're still the top of the Premier League. I want you to know that. I want you to know that. It does not affect me whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> Let me sell out one of your members. One of your members during Tim's announcements already messaged me that. Brandon shall go unnamed. <clears throat> okay. Uh, welcome to the, the last night of God and Sexuality. And um, let me just uh, kick off by saying that tonight's talk is actually part two of a two-part talk. Um, we're gonna be talking about God and same-sex attraction, God and the gay community. Um, and some of you might have been here last Sunday and now you've rocked up this Sunday and you're like, I'm pretty sure um, there was no part one to this talk. Um, and that's because part one happened on Wednesday night and you can go and catch up on that. And I really, I really do recommend you do and I'll tell you why just now. <coughs> and I will touch on what we covered um, in part one shortly. But for now, I just wanna acknowledge off the bat that there are a whole bunch of different people in the room. There's a wide, wild spectrum of people in the room tonight. Some of you uh, have same-sex attraction in the room right now. That is your reality. Some of you don't. Some of you in the room consider yourselves to be Christ followers. Some of you don't. You are here out of curiosity of finding more out about Jesus and exploring the Christian faith, or you're just here to find out what I have to say on this particular topic, but you're in the room nonetheless. Um, for whatever reason, um, I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad everyone is here tonight. Um, and if you are not a follower of Christ, um, welcome. I really hope that uh, tonight you um, 
hear about the person of Jesus, the person that we want to speak about more than we speak about all sorts of niche topics. Um, he's the person, his work on the cross and his resurrection is, is actually what we sing about and preach about every single week, week in and week out. And let me just say, it's also quite hard to speak in sort of one blanket voice to all the multitudes of experiences that are in the room and all the different types of people. So once again, let me just say that I'm primarily speaking to people who consider this church to be your home and me as a, as a familiar voice to you. Um, and I've been invited here by your leaders. Um, and let me just say this, much like the situation in my community in Seapoint, um, I've connected with many of you in this room who have same-sex attraction. We've chatted, and I know your story. Um, and that's the same for, as, you know, as, as I said, guys in my community. Um, and it's, it's great to have journeyed with you or find out about your story. Um, some of you are here, though, and no one knows your story. In fact, you might have same-sex attraction, and no one on earth knows that you have it. And for whatever reason, up until this point in your life, you've kept it in, you've kept it a secret, for whatever reason. Regardless of who you are, I trust that God is gonna speak to you today. No matter where you are, I trust the Holy Spirit to be able to speak to different people in different ways as He sees fit. And I really do think He's gonna help us, He's gonna love us, He's gonna stretch us, He's gonna challenge us, He's gonna give us hope, He's gonna grow us in all sorts of different ways. <clears throat> now. When it comes to this topic of God and same-sex attraction, we've got to make sure that we are thinking rightly as Christ followers and on the same page about a whole bunch of things. Number one, God, who He is, what He's like, what He says. Scripture, sex, what it is, what it's for. Sin and discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. And all Five of those things are gonna weave their way in and out through my talk this evening. And hopefully if you've been here over the last six weeks and eight sessions of this journey, you would have, those, you would have seen those five things work their way into every topic that we have chatted about really in this series. And let me say this, for those of you who have missed um, the, in, in a sense, very important building blocks um, that have led us up to here, um, but for whatever reason you're here tonight and you are, you know, you just, this is all new to you. Let me just high level in a very, very brief 20 second nutshell compared to eight hours, what we believe. Let me just basically say this. Practically, we believe that living in the way of Jesus means embracing his vision for all of life. And that includes his vision of sexuality. And this practically looks like abstaining from all sexual relations outside of a marriage union between one man and one woman. That is, in a sense, our high level view, and I think the Bible's high-level view on this topic. So what we're gonna do tonight is, I said we had part one on, on Wednesday, tonight we're gonna be in part two, and what I'm calling part two is <coughs> the eight C's of this conversation, the eight C's of this conversation. You are used to three-point sermons at Common Ground Rondebosch, tonight you'll have an eight-point sermon. It will not be two and two-thirds times longer, hopefully, and that's not the goal. Um, and the C's hopefully make it sticky and helpful to remember when you're trying to recall some information deep into this week. And so um, the eight C's of this conversation, the idea is to cover a whole bunch of things and respond to a whole bunch of questions. Things like this. How should we as Christ followers think through this conversation? How do we all, all, and I mean all, as Christ followers, live for Jesus better with our brothers and sisters in mind? How can we show the truth and love of Jesus to the world around us? How can we talk to people when they question us on this topic? 
And for some of you who do experience same-sex attraction and you have said yes to Jesus, how do you faithfully live your life as Jesus would call you to in this community and what hope is there for you? And I believe there is hope. And so that's where we're going. And let me introduce the first C of the night to us. It is clarity. Clarity. And particularly we're talking about clarity with regards to Scripture. And this is in many ways what we did on Wednesday night if you were here. We essentially just drank from a fire hydrant for an hour and 20 minutes or whatever it was, going through every single biblical text on the subject and coming to the conclusion at the end um, that the historical view of the Bible that the church has held for 2,000 years has stood up, has stood up. Now on that, let me say this. I think if I'm being as charitable as I can, it's out of love and it's out of deep concern for people that some leaders, teachers, brothers and sisters in Christ, whoever it might be, can end up saying things like, you know what, don't follow Jesus on this one. Rather, adopt the teachers, adopt the translations, adopt the interpretations that allow us just to you know, forget what the Bible says on this topic. That's, I think, hopefully being charitable. The thing is, what I've observed in my interactions and conversations with people, as well as just globally seeing the, the, the wider church and knowing people beyond my sphere personally, is that this seems to be what I'm calling a warning light issue, a warning light issue. It's often a telltale sign of the trajectory of the next few years of your faith because almost without fail, when you change your theological position on this topic, you will end up changing your theological position on a whole bunch of other topics and start to embrace sort of a progressive form of Christianity that really leaves orthodox Christianity and what we believe for 2,000 years in the dust. And that goes for if you have same-sex attraction or not. I'm just talking about the theological viewpoint here. And so that's why this is an incredibly important thing. And so as I say, we come to the conclusion that marriage is between one man and one woman and both homosexual and heterosexual sex outside of marriage is a sin in God's eyes. And let me just read the one, one of the several passages that we, uh, we dealt with that night uh, from 1 Corinthians 6. Paul writing to the church in Corinth said this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Christ followers in Corinth, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And if this is the case, if it was true for the Corinthians, it's true for us. It means there are people who, in this room, as I've said, are trying to follow Jesus and have same-sex attraction at the same time. And um, what I wanna say is if that's the case, for the rest of us in this community, we need um, to serve our brothers and sisters and help make, how do I say this? Make living the life that Jesus is asking them to live possible or even in the words of Ed Shaw, plausible. Ed Shaw is a same-sex attracted uh, Christian leader, author. Um, his book really helped me a lot. It's called The Plausibility Problem, um, The Church and Same-Sex Attraction. I highly commend that book to you. Um, this is what he said at the beginning of his book. It's so much harder to hold fast to what Scripture certainly teaches 
in light of our culture's bombardment, which tells us to embrace our desires, sleep with who you want, etc. And it's even harder now when lots of churches tell people that it's also fine. And it's going to be increasingly harder for the generation that's coming through now. And so step one for us is clarity. Clarity with regards to the scriptures. We wanna stand on the Bible. And that's the first C. And you might not have listened to part one yet. So you're here tonight um, and perhaps you're a Christ follower or you're grappling with this stuff. And you've heard a lot of the sort of progressive Christian arguments on this and essentially why Jews and Christians have been wrong about their scriptures for two to 3,000 years on this matter um, and how we've misread it. And if that is you um, and you haven't been able to do the deep dive yet and, 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 and you know, wrestle with a whole bunch of stuff when you weren't here on, on Wednesday, can I ask you to suspend your judgment just for the next 30, 40 minutes while I finish this talk um, and then feel free to go and dive into that stuff. But I just wanna ask you to suspend your judgment and just go for the next 30 minutes with the weight of orthodoxy on this matter. That what millions of Christians in, Christians in multitudes of cultures over 20 centuries have believed to be true is true and just listen in to the rest of the talk because everything I've got to say is based off that and if you're not a Christ follower you're invited to find out about the person of Jesus no doubt it'll come through this specific niche topic tonight but as I said earlier this topic is not what we chat about week in and week out I want you to grapple with the historical fact that there is someone who claimed to be God, who there seems to be a lot of historical evidence, died and came back to life. And what might he have to say to you? What might he have to say for your life? What are his invitations to you tonight? That's what I would like to invite you into. And so, see number one, clarity. From that, we're gonna move on to probably the longest C in the list, which is cosmology, cosmology. I needed eight Cs, and worldview wasn't beginning with C. <laughs> Cosmology is its replacement. And what we're talking about here is the meaning and nature of the universe. Is there a creator, is there not? Where do we turn to for truth and authority? What plumb line do we measure our, our lives against, and what do we give our lives to and for? And as we said every week, as we engage in this particular topic, um, whether it's same-sex attraction or sexuality in general, it's almost always gonna come back to this. It's always, almost always gonna come back to um, what meta-narrative are, are you believing? That's almost where we need to go to first. What big story of the world do you believe and are you subscribing to and living in? And the language we've been using, using here in Bosch in the last couple of weeks is that of the, the puzzle box, right? All of us um, have puzzle pieces in a sense um, of different experiences and parts of our lives. One of those puzzle pieces is our sexuality and our sexuality experiences. And um, we need to figure out with a puzzle piece what picture does this fit into? And so you can hold it up to one puzzle box and see, okay, it seems to fit there and there and there, but you hold it up to a different puzzle box and you realize, oh my gosh, it's actually part of this picture and this is how it fits and that's how it's ordered. It all depends on what puzzle box, what meta-narrative of the world you are subscribing to and believing in and living out. <coughs> and so I'd like to chat a little bit about the, the secular puzzle box, the secular uh, cosmology worldview here for a moment, and then we'll look at, at, the, at, at the God story after that. But uh, in, in Western thought and in predominantly Westernized cultures at large, um, there have been sort of three momentous shifts over the last couple of centuries in the Western mind. Um, and a little slide will come up now. Um, 
There's been a shift from the pre-modern to the modern to the post-modern, okay? In the pre-modern, we're talking about sort of prior to the 17th century, um, reality was thought to be both material and spiritual. It's a very Judeo-Christian uh, you know, worldview. And the supreme authority was thought to be God's word and the world that he had created, his, his material world. Then comes along the, you know, the so-called enlightenment and we shift to the modern era. And what happens here in the 18th and 20th centuries is that the spiritual side gets completely cut off. We no longer believe there's a God. The material world is all that exists. And so it's that that we need to go to, to study, to find you know, supreme authority. And so science becomes the guiding principle, the supreme authority that we measure our lives off. And that is a worldview that many of us still find ourselves in, but there's been one other massive shift that has happened in the last sort of 70, 80 years, <coughs> and that is to postmodernism, right? And in some ways, it's a bit of a flip round. Ultimate reality is now deemed to be the human mind. Whatever you think, whatever you feel is ultimate. Even um, in the, the highest courts in, in America, um, this sort of language is, is laid out in legislation. Reality and meaning of the entire universe and even what the universe is, is up for every human being to decide. It's almost a verbatim quote. And the supreme authority in this worldview is the sovereign autonomous self. In a sense, not even the, the whole person, but just what's in the heart and what's in the mind. That is supreme authority. And we find ourselves in the time that is actually caught between the modern and the postmodern. And um, you'll find that many of us actually are struggling to hold together both these things in our mind because there's so much uh, tension and fault lines in our culture and in modern thought. And because of this, in a sense, and you might have heard this before from Ian, the, the, the very notion of truth um, has, in a sense, been divided. Um, this leads to something called the fact-value divide, which will go up here now. <coughs> Please excuse my cough. Um, and so what you'll see here on the fact-value divide, drum roll please, there we go, um, is essentially below the line in the sort of first story of the house, we've got science. And that is deemed to be uh, public, it's deemed to be objective, and it's valid for everyone. And the idea is hopefully it's a material thing that we can measure and we can understand and we can have some pretty accurate assumptions that we can make from it and, and, and live by. However, that's not all. Above the line, things like theology, things like morality, which are things we deeply care about and deeply give ourselves to as human beings, um, is said to be private, is said to be subjective, and said to be relativistic. You can see right here the clash of the modern and the postmodern, trying to hold two things in tension. This is the fact-value divide. Now, in our sort of recent history, the last hundred years or whatever it is, if you consider that recent, you've got Charles Darwin, who's popularized the, the idea that um, we are all just um, products of evolution. We are just animals that have evolved. There is no God, there is no creator, and therefore there is no intention behind your creation or your life whatsoever. You are a random accident. You're a collision of atoms and uh, basically animals getting smart. Now, you take Darwin's stuff, you put this in mind, and it's led to um, something called personhood theory, which again, I think Ian brought up last week. What is personhood theory? Well, I'll explain a little bit more now, but let me say this. Personhood theory would say, to be biologically human is a fact, bottom level, but to be a person is an ethical concept defined by what, you, or what we value. And so, you have the physical body, 
that's in the material world, and it is just raw material. And if we believe Darwin or whatever, that wherever there's no God, there's no intrinsic identity, there's no intrinsic purpose to your body at all. And, however, we've got the autonomous self, the person in the heart, the person in the mind, who is therefore, if that is supreme authority, free to impose its own interpretations on the body. And you, depending on how you define person, it affects a whole bunch of things, and people are querying that. So Peter Singer, who's the leading proponent of personhood theory, and it's in, in many ways, it's just a logical outworking of this worldview, he advocates for abortion up to three years outside the womb. Why? Because my two and a half year old might be a human, he's running around in his body, but his mind hasn't gotten to the point where we can consider him a person. And so Philip K. Dick, who wrote Blade Runner and Minority Report and a whole bunch of great stories, wrote quite an amazing short story in the 60s that I've actually read about this, where 12 year old kids are frightened because they know the day has come when the truck is coming to take them away to be aborted. It's a logical outworking of this viewpoint. Listen to Camille Paglia on this. She's not a Christ follower. Nature made us male and female. Okay, I agree with that. I realize you can't argue with nature. Nature created us as a sexually reproducing species. But why not defy nature? Why not defy nature's tyranny? After all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. Therefore, we have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit as we see fit. Now bring us all back to the topic of sex, and let me say this, um, because you might not have thought about this, everyone on the face of the planet, pretty much, limits sex based on what they think it is. So Christians are not the only people in the world who have certain boundaries and rules around the thing of sex. Some would say it's for one man and one woman in marriage, but others would say it's for monogamous consenting adults. Others would say it's for all human beings, regardless of their orientation. Others would say it's okay for children and adults to have sex, as long as both, you know, both parties are consenting. Others would say it's okay to have sex with animals. And the list could go on. The list could go on. It all depends on what you think sex is and what you think sex is for. Now, personhood theory and this, this split between the body and the, the person totally explains the drive for hookup culture. Okay? in our sort of modern world, people getting on Tinder, trying to find three, four hookups a night with people they don't know. Because think of it this way, if sex involves two bodies, it doesn't have to mean that it involves two persons. And so the person and the body don't need to intermingle, and people assume they're not intermingling. And yet, in our culture, people are finding themselves increasingly disillusioned because they are struggling to disentangle their emotions and their hearts and their souls and their minds from the act of sex with other people. So that's the secular puzzle box. That's the secular story that some of us, whether knowingly or unknowingly, hold our puzzle pieces up and try to make sense of this question of sex. Here's the God story. Here's the God puzzle box. God has revealed himself in his word, in the scriptures over centuries, and his world, the material world that he created. Okay? The heavens, the skies, declare the glory of God. There is purpose in the things God has made and in the ways that he made them. That's why Solomon in the book of Proverbs, I love it, can point to the ant and say, go look at the ant, you sluggard, and consider her ways, how she stores up food for the winter. Go and learn lessons from creation. There's stuff to take in here. 
And often in God's creation, in fact, typically in God's creation, I would say form speaks of function. It's what the Greeks would call teleology. <coughs> if you wanna know if this hammer is a good hammer, see how it hits the nail. That's how you'll know if it's a good hammer. If you wanna take your glass from your kitchen cabinet and try and smash a nail in with that, good luck. Let's find out if it's a really good hammer or actually it's a really good glass rather. But there's a fit in God's world between his ethics and values and the world that he created, including our bodies. So Genesis one kicks off with, with very physical material language here. God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We spent a lot of time in, this, in the last two weeks when we were looking at transgender and intersex. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 again, a little later than the passage we read earlier. He says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our bodies matter. Often Paul, and even here a little bit, you can hear, he almost interchanges you and your body. Maybe it's helpful now to just say, especially for those of you who haven't been here for the last five weeks, what is sex in God's mind? What is it, what's it for? Why did he even create it? <coughs> now I'll put before you three things, super high level of um, what sex speaks to and what sex is about. Number one, Sex is about creation, it's about creation. Creation itself is made up of complementary pairs. You go and read the creation account in Genesis one and you've got light and dark, heaven and earth, sun and moon, male and female. And creation itself is a place of fit. You need two different things to create life. You need the heavens to rain down on the earth in order for vegetation to sprout. We need diversity coming together in unity. It's a beautiful picture of the church, but it's even found in the very nature of God himself. That's who he is. Sex is about that. Sex is also about worship. Sex is about worship. What you worship and who you sleep with are closely connected. Idolatry in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, and idolatry is essentially worshiping other gods rather than the true creator God of the Bible. Um, idolatry for the people of Israel was often portrayed in the scriptures in the Old Testament with language of adultery, whoredom, and immorality. Okay, and think of it, you've got one God for them who is not like you, and you've got one spouse who is also not like you, but you've entered into a covenant relationship together. And you contrast this to the other religions surrounding Israel at the time, where there was multiple gods that were worshiped, and lots of people had multiple sexual partners. Even the actual worship ceremonies themselves involved sort of cultic sexual acts with multiple partners. There's a connection, there's a connection. Lastly, sex is about the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ has come to this world to pursue his people, that Jesus Christ laid down his life to win people and restore them back to him and back to relationship with God. This is about that. Marriage is a pointer to the relationship between God and his people. It's a pointer to the relationship between Christ and the church. And so that's just a very high level summary. I'm sure there's lots more we could add to that list. Suffice to say, after all of that, soul and body are 
intertwined and they are interlinked. What you do with your body matters because it is you, it is you. You are not a soul trapped in a body. That is Greek philosophy. You are an embodied person. That's biblical doctrine. You are an embodied person. On the other side of the resurrection, you will receive a glorified physical resurrection body, much like Jesus did as the first fruits of that harvest that is coming. So you are male or female, your body has a design and morality is linked to far more than just the psychological. Morality is linked to far more than just the psychological. And we know that from a whole bunch of of other things. And so to engage in same-sex behavior and practice is to implicitly say, why should my body inform my psychological identity? Why should the structural order of my body have anything to say about what I do sexually? And let me just be clear and frank here in case no one's understanding that. We're talking about here about the compatibility of male and female genitalia and how they are clearly designed with a fit. Why should my moral choices be dictated to by my form? Those are the questions. The thing is, every practice that we give ourselves to, sexually or other, has a worldview attached to it. It has a worldview attached to it. Sexual decisions are not just about deciding to to follow a, a few small little rules here from an uptight God, no. We're expressing our view of the cosmos and human nature every time we engage in some shape of sexual activity. We're living out the story, the story and the meta-narrative and the puzzle box that we live in. So that's the second C. It is the longest C by far. It is the most academic and intellectual by far. Um, so we're just gonna keep moving on for time's sake here and look at the next one, which is conversion. Conversion, the big question here is, can someone who has same-sex attraction, that is their orientation, become a Christian? And my short answer, the short answer, I think, is yes, yes. Same-sex attraction is not a deal-breaker when coming to Christ. Why? Because we are all sinners. Paul says in Romans, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all arrive at the foot of the cross as sinners, needing to be rescued from our sin and restored to relationship with God. Now, sin, there's many ways I think you could define sin or set it up. One of the main ways to consider sin is that it is fundamentally idolatry. It is worshiping um, something or someone else in the place of God. We looked at that from Romans 1 on Wednesday night. It's, It's swapping out the creator for some form of creation and then in light of that, making disordered decisions because of it. That's what sin is, not just sexual sin, but all sin. So we all arrive, as I say, as sinners, but all of us, all of us can come to Jesus through repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Repentance means to acknowledge that you've been living a different story. You've been in a different puzzle box. You've been worshiping things other than God. In fact, you've been in rebellion to God, whether it's been active or passive and you didn't even recognize it. And it's about coming to the point of recognizing that your sin has separated you from God and you need to be reconciled to Him and that He has provided a way for reconciliation, namely God Himself coming in flesh in the person of Jesus, dying on our behalf, rising again in triumph 
and saying, trust me, what I did on the cross can pay for your sin so that you can come home and start a new life. That's what repentance is. And we lay hold of what Christ has done through faith by trusting him, by trusting that what he did was enough to bring us home and start, and this is key, and start a whole new life of transformation. Saying yes to Jesus, trusting in Christ for the first time is not the final step, it is the first step of a whole new journey and a whole new life. And so I wanna ask, have you done this? To the people that I, I, I couldn't eyeball you because I can't really see you, but who I spoke to earlier um, who are visiting and you're not a Christ follower at this point. I urge you to do this. I urge you to do this, to come before the creator of the universe, recognize who he is, but recognize that he's good and that he loves you so much that he died for you to bring you back into a relationship with him. And that he is all knowing and all powerful and all wise and he knows what is best for human flourishing because he is the good creator who knows what he's doing and wants to see your life lived out to the fullest in relationship with him and others. Here's the bottom line when it comes to faith and then starting that journey of, of, of living out your faith. God doesn't just want your sex life. He wants your whole life. It's so much worse. <laughs> it's so much worse than you might have first thought, just so you know. He wants everything. Our sex lives are just scratching the surface of God's call to repentance on us, okay? Someone quite, I thought it was quite funny. Um, they say this, but it, it's true. Not only can your genitals be in the wrong place, the problem is our hearts are in the wrong place. That's true. That's 100% true. And I wanna highlight that in our, in our culture, I think it's worth noting that sex seems to be the one thing that people are not willing to give up in pursuit of a God. Just consider that for a moment. If someone is gonna to convert to Islam, they wanna become a Muslim, and, and people do that, obviously. Um, they would recognize that to do that, I would need to give up the right to eat meat that's been killed in a certain way. I would need to give up the right to drink alcohol. But they will say, no, for sure, I'll do that, because that's what a Muslim is, and that's what a Muslim does. If you wanna to convert to Judaism, and you are a gentleman in the room, what do you need to give up? You need to give up the right to have your foreskin if you still have one. And people will say, that's what it means to be a Jew. That is the covenant sign of the Jewish people, and so I will do that. But so often people will say, I'm not willing to give up sex or my sexual preferences in order to become a Christian, in order to say yes to the God of the Bible. And why, you might ask? I think because if sin is exchanging creator for creation, I think sex is the thing that we've all made that exchange for in our culture. Sex has become the other God that we worship. Sex has become the functional savior that we think is gonna rescue us from all our hells of loneliness and um, uh, insecurities or whatever it might be. I think, I think that's what's happening. Sex is the false God of our generation. But Jesus is redeeming us from all our sin, sexual and non-sexual. That's what Jesus is doing. And to those who have not said yes to him, Jesus stands here with, wide, with arms wide open, saying to all who will come, come. To all who will come, come. In one sense, it's the most inclusive offer of all time. I'm gonna keep moving on. Change. 
change. That's the next C. Is change possible? Is change possible when it comes to sexual orientation? Many will say no. If you have homosexual desires, they will never leave you, they will never forsake you, you cannot change. You are born this way. Your sexual orientation is immutable. That's the language that's often used in books or whatever it might be. And this has been the sort of dominant narrative from an activist front for the last 30, 40 years, no doubt. However, even gay activists in many circles right now have abandoned this particular notion and claim it's unscientific, okay? And let me say this, we'll we'll talk about this more now. If you notice, the logic often only goes one way. And so if you went to Hollywood right now and someone in Hollywood um, says, you know what, I I have been straight, I'm now gay, I was heterosexual, I'm now becoming homosexual. That person is likely to be applauded for being who they really are, for being their true self. However, if someone in Hollywood today was to move in the other direction, and there have been plenty of stories that I can point you to online of people that have moved this direction, And they said, for whatever reason, either um, I used to experience same-sex attraction and I no longer do, I'm attracted to people of the opposite sex, or I'm choosing to um, not express my same-sex attraction, I'm choosing to remain celibate, what's gonna be said to them? Well, I'll tell you what, what has been said to them. They've been told that they've internalized homophobia, that they are capitulating to the traditional culture that is around them, and they're probably acting out of self-loathing. They're acting out of self-loathing. However, in spite of Hollywood and many other things, there are many secular people who are saying that change is possible. Change is possible, okay? Brain patterns are not fixed. Neuroplasticity is very, very real. Your brain rechannels neural pathways based on what you expose it to. It's how both Christians and non-Christians fight porn. That's what happens, you rewire the neural pathways. Even genetics are not necessarily fixed. Okay, life events can trigger essentially little biochemical messages that that clamp down on your genes and prevent things from passing on to the next generation, whatever it might be. It's called epigenetics, you can go check it up. And specifically on this topic, recent studies have found that sexual desire is more fluid than most people had thought. So I'm gonna quote now from Lisa Diamond. She is not a Christ follower, she is a lesbian researcher with the APA, the American Psychological Association. And she's found that environment, culture, and context all can influence one's orientation. I'm gonna quote from her now, do not shoot the messenger, her words not mine. We know it's not true. Queers have to stop saying, please help us, We were born this way and we can't change as an argument for legal standing. She goes on, I'll paraphrase here. Sexual fluidity may explain why situational homosexuality sometimes emerges in exclusively same-sex environments such as prisons or the vast numbers of women who became lesbian in the Russian gulags. So those are some thoughts on change and all I've done is actually bring up some of the secular work at the moment and secular research. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about God, what does he have to say? He would say this, that he is the only immutable person in the world. He's the only unchanging being in the world. That's one of the things we bank on as Christ followers, okay? Theologians would say, um, God being immutable and unchanging is one of the characteristics you and I do not share with him. (laughs) There's many characteristics we share with, with, with our God, this is not one of them. This alone is his domain. 
And if you think about it, actually, God is all about changing people. That's what he does. That's what he does. That's what the Christian life is all about. We are all being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are all being shaped and molded into the image of Jesus. That's what the Christian life is about. And there are countless stories on this particular question of change. I can name quite a few. Off the top of my head, I can name Jackie Hill Perry and Andrew Wilson and who did I have? Rosaria Butterfield. Those Those are just a handful. And there are stories of partial change. I have friends of mine who've experienced partial change. There are sort of public figures like Sean Doherty. And basically, they, in, the, in, 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 in these two cases, they are still primarily same-sex attracted, but they've been able to be attracted to someone of the opposite sex who is their spouse. And in the case of, of my friend, this is how he describes it. I mean, he's married with two kids. He describes his sort of temptation and experience like this. He says, sometimes the bird flies over my head. I just don't let it nest. And I thought that was interesting and that was helpful. But we can't stop there because I don't think that's the full picture. I do wanna say, and I do have to acknowledge, that for some people, change might not be possible. And you might not end up ever being attracted to someone of the opposite sex. Some of the scholars that have most helped me in preparing Wednesday and tonight are men who are same-sex attracted celibate, serving Jesus, authors, pastors, whatever it is. Sam Albury, whose book I highly recommend, and that's on sale. (coughs) Ed Shaw, Vaughan Roberts, there's a whole bunch of others. (coughs) Let me say this. The goal, if you are following Jesus and are same-sex attracted, the goal is holiness, not heterosexuality. The goal is holiness, not heterosexuality. Please consider that the majority of sexual sin around the world is committed by heterosexuals. It's not gonna all of a sudden make you a righteous person if you're no longer attracted to this person and now you're attracted to this person. We all have orientations and desires towards sin and away from God's design. In the area of sex, Sam Albury would say, in some ways, none of us are straight according to God's plumb line whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. And we all have sinned in a multitude of ways. It's what we choose to do with our desires in our hearts and in our minds and what we choose to do practically when living them out with our bodies that matters. Temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus himself was tempted and yet sinless as we know. So I hope that's helpful um, on that See, We'll just keep moving on to a huge one, compassion, compassion. We are called, as followers of Jesus, to be outrageously compassionate people, outrageously compassionate people. God is revealed in the person of Jesus, and he is our model for this, because Jesus is an outrageously compassionate person. Consider this, he is both controversially inclusive and uncompromisingly confrontational at the same time. That's who Jesus is, right? He's both complained about for being too direct, you know, um, challenging the sins of people in terms of their pride, their hypocrisy, a whole bunch of other things. And he's also complained about for being too inclusive of those who don't fit the mold, who've been rejected by others. And Jesus is like this with my sin, my messed up life, and your sin and your messed up life. Jesus is a beautiful, beautiful model. This is why we love him. This is why we love him. 
And so to those in the room who don't have same-sex attraction, can I ask us this? Do we love gay people enough to die for them? Because Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus did. This is extremely different to what our culture often says about Christians. And no doubt, no doubt, Christians have been dumb in this area. And Christians have said dumb, stupid, horrible things. No doubt. But let me say this. In our moment in time, Christians will often be called bigots, homophobes, whatever else, not because of even the how of the way we interact with people and engage, but simply for the what regarding our beliefs, okay? And we're often forced into a sort of lose-lose scenario when the question is, is posed to us. Hey man, do you, do you affirm gay people and their lifestyle or are you fearful of them and, and hate them? That's how the question is posed. That's how the question is posed. The frame of the whole conversation has already been controlled by that question. It's like the question, um, are you still beating your wife? It's a lose-lose, you know, I might need to think about that for a second. It's a lose-lose question, either way, how you answer that question. And this is just a different version of that. The question carries with it the assumption that if you disagree with someone and refuse to fully accept and affirm all their choices, then you hate them or you're afraid of them or whatever it might be. And can I just say flat out that we categorically reject that. We reject that, okay? In fact, people who think that, and you might be in the room tonight, can I just say that surely you disagree with other people. In fact, likely you might disagree with me right now. And based on your own words and the own way that you're framing this, you then are saying you hate me, which is fine, but just reconcile that. As for us, we're not gonna say that. We're not gonna say that. We're gonna be able to disagree with people and love them, and we are gonna be friends with gay people. I am friends with gay people. Outside the church, we're gonna love them. We're gonna host them for meals in our home. We're gonna go out for beers. I've done plenty of beers with gay people in the last three years. We're gonna go to the movies together, whatever it might be. And we're gonna love our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters inside this church. Those of us who are trying to follow Jesus make sense of this world. And I think one of the practical things we can do to serve our brothers and sisters in this area is just to simply watch the way we talk and watch the way we use words. What we need to really avoid is talking in a, in a, in a, in a room as if people with same-sex attraction are out there and they're alien. No. I've been working really hard over the last two, three years in Seapoint to coach life groups and life group leaders. If you're gonna bring the topic up in this group, make sure you recognize that there's probably people in your midst who are struggling right now and just haven't shared or you don't know about their story. So we just wanna watch the way that we talk. Our life groups must be safe, safe places for people to open up about their sexuality. Next C. Everyone good? We're alive. Costly obedience, costly obedience. You can see that I've cheated here again with the C's in order to make the C's work. But it is for all our benefit so that we remember these things. Costly obedience. What does the call to follow Jesus mean? Following Jesus 
involves sacrifice. It involves cross-carrying. It involves unadulterated devotion. We're called to leave our lives behind. Saying yes to the good news of Jesus is laying hold the, the free gift, laying hold of the free gift that cost us everything. You might have a big question mark there. The free gift that cost us everything. Permit me to explain. Um, I'll steal Andrew Wilson's metaphor here because I find it quite helpful. Imagine I have the most expensive crystal artifact in my hands. How I have it, I do not know. <laughs> How this landed up here, I don't know. I didn't steal it, but I've got it. And for some reason, I'm offering it to you. I'm gonna give it to you. And in that moment, I throw this thing across the room to you. And you've got a packet of McDonald's in your hands or whatever it might be. This free gift of priceless value is coming to you and it's yours. It's a gift. I'm giving it to you. But in order to lay hold of it, you need to drop everything you're carrying to get it. That's how Jesus described the kingdom of heaven. That's how Jesus described the gospel. You go and look at all his parables on this topic. He speaks about someone who um, is in a field and they come across this treasure. And the treasure is, is kind of like the kingdom of heaven. And this person recognizes its value, so they leave, they sell everything they have to come and buy the field to lay hold of the treasure. That's what the gospel really is and looks like and how we receive it. We can't earn our salvation. We can't earn our way back into God's presence. We can't pay our own debt for our sin. We need Christ on the cross. But in order to lay hold of it, we need to leave everything behind. We're meant to weigh up the cost of following Jesus at that moment. And we symbolize it in baptism, like we've seen earlier this evening, all right? There is, in a sense, a picture of dying to our old life, dying to the old meta-narrative that we subscribe to and coming out of the water anew as a new creation, part of a new story, living a new life to the praise of God. So we go under symbolizing that death to that old way of life. There's a great biography I would love to commend to you. It is called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by the fantastically named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Anyone who's pregnant, anyone getting married recently, Kyle, my doppelganger, you guys, Champagne, considered for your first child's name. <coughs> but Rosaria Butterfield um, was a, a secular lesbian women's studies professor in the States, um, and she meets Jesus eventually, but before she's a Christ follower, she's actually reading the Bible and she's exploring uh, faith. And she comes across the sort of more liberal, progressive Methodist minister, and this is what she says about conversations with him in her explorations of faith. He told me that I could have Jesus and my lesbian lover. This was a very appealing prospect, obviously. But I had been reading and rereading scripture, and there are no such marks of postmodern both and in the Bible. Rosaria Butterfield, at that point in her life, recognized that it's, it's one way or the other. And for her, she had a lot on the line. She had a lot on the line. Her job, her girlfriend, in many ways, her soulmate, and a whole bunch more. And I, I recommend go read the book, but spoiler alert, she loses her job. She loses her girlfriend, obviously. She, she breaks up with her. 
she loses her job, I say, she, has to, she loses her whole friendship circle, she has to move state, and she writes this eventually, I lost everything but the dog. But she says it was worth it. It was worth it. Now for some of us, coming to Christ might not be that sort of a dramatic shift, right? It might seem a lot simpler, a lot easier, but we can't lose the truth and the call from Jesus who tells us to count the cost up front at the beginning. As we've said many times, we all have disordered desires, and so we all have our crosses to carry, whatever that might be. The thing is, many of us in our current context think suffering is to be completely avoided. Suffering is to be completely avoided. We've been brought up to believe that if something involves suffering or even makes you a bit uncomfortable, you need to avoid it and find something that's gonna make you happy and comfortable. The problem is Jesus did not give you and I that idea. It came from somewhere else. Jesus told us that suffering for a good cause is not actually to be avoided, but embraced, all right? Just think of Jesus himself. Jesus came to suffer. In many ways, that was what his life on earth was all about. When Peter tries to stop Jesus from suffering on the cross, Jesus rebukes Peter and calls him Satan. That's that's how serious he is about it. In Mark 8, before that encounter, Jesus says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, here's Jesus' quote, sorry, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And by and large in the West, Christians have stopped denying themselves and rather we speak about the right to be ourselves. It's very counter the way of Jesus. We end up basically continuing our lives like everyone else, believing pretty much what everyone else believes with just a sort of thin veneer varnish of Christ on top. And we think we're good to go. So let me say this to the, the heterosexuals in the room who are Christ followers. What are the things that we, myself included, are denying ourselves for Jesus' sake and the gospel? What suffering are we experiencing for the sake of the kingdom of God? Because if we all together don't embrace the true life that we are all called to, why should someone else expect themselves to be able to do it when they seem to be the only one who's counting the cost and carrying a cross? How much harder is it when you alone are seeking to deny yourself and truly follow Jesus? And perhaps a community, I'm not saying this is this community, but perhaps in a community where it seems no one else seems to really be carrying any type of cross. Lastly on this, for those in the room who are same-sex attracted, and we don't know the future of your story yet, but you're following Jesus currently, and your attraction might never go away. It might not change. Even secular scholars agree with Jesus on this point, that celibacy doesn't mean an unfulfilled life. Okay, I'll quote from the APA again, the American Psychological Association, who are pretty much in their secular way echoing the words of Jesus here, that some people with homoerotic desires are happier when they restrain them. Why? Because human beings are happiest when we choose an identity that is congruent with our deepest convictions, living them out, even when it is difficult and demanding. We have two more C's, and the last two are really quick. 
What we're going to do in between them, once I'm finished the seventh one, is um, we're going to watch a, a short video, four minutes or so, from a, a pastor in the UK who is one, uh, part of our advanced family of churches, and he's going to share his story on issues of same-sex attraction. And I, I want to be clear when it comes up, this is not everyone's story, it is a story, but I do think a lot of what he has to say is helpful, and it's just great to, to hear from a brother from the other side of the world. But here's the seventh C, companionship, companionship. And I guess here's the question that people might ask here. Aren't we consigning people to a life of loneliness? Aren't we consigning people to a life of loneliness? And I'll be quick here and just point you back to Ryan's uh, talk on singleness from a couple of weeks ago where he really unpacked this in a much bigger way. But let me just touch on this and say marriage is not the only answer to loneliness. It's not. There are many heterosexual people too who won't be married. Where I come from, where I'm pastoring in Seapoint, I have many people in their 30s and 40s who are single and it doesn't look like there's any prospects of that changing on the horizon. And they are not lonely. Sure, they have times of that, but they are, they're some of the best, most faithful people we have. And just demographically, we are skewing sort of 65, 70% women sometimes. You just do the math in our community. There are people who aren't gonna find Jesus-loving spouses the way they would like. But the church is meant to be the family that they might not ultimately be a part of or might not have. The church is meant to be the new family where people find intimate relationships by doing life together, by living together. Jesus himself redefined family and said, who are my mother and my brothers? It is those who do the will of my father. And that's what we desperately desire this community and other Christian communities to be. Let me just read you Jesus' words from Mark 10, which really meant a lot to Michelle and I, my wife, when we were um, <coughs> leaving this community four years ago and moving over to Seapoint and really wrestling with the relational cost, all sorts of costs and things that we were leaving behind in order to go and serve the crew over at Seapoint. We really held on to this. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions for sure and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. God has an amazing way of bringing a compensating grace for the things that we, we do lose in this life, whoever we might be. But what this means practically for us, I think, as a community, is that we need to debunk the lie, the script, that two men and two women can't be in an intimate friendship with each other without it automatically having some sort of sexual connotation. We just need to call that for what it is, a Freudian lie, because we would be depriving people of beautifully God-ordained opportunities for people to have rich, intimate friendships with members of the same sex, which we all so desperately need, particularly when it comes to this topic, maybe, those of us who are same-sex attracted. So, 
Jimmy's video is going to play now, and we're going to watch it. It's going to be about four minutes, and in fact, the band is welcome to come up if they want towards the end of that video, because our last C is pretty much going to be a, a call into our response song. So we can hit the video. My name's Jeremy. I'm a pastor at a church called Grace London and a friend of Ryan's, and I'm really happy to share my story with you. I first realized I was gay probably about the age of 11. Just as my friends were experiencing attraction towards girls, I started experiencing attraction towards guys. And although I probably didn't want to be gay, I felt I couldn't deny the feelings that I was experiencing. By the age of 16, I'd come out to most of my friends, uh, begun dating and that sort of thing, and I'd become a significant part of my identity. It wasn't particularly easy. I was worried what other people in my school would say, and I was probably most concerned what my parents would say. I don't come from a Christian family, but I knew that they, my dad particularly wouldn't approve. About the same time, I started to explore the Christian faith, and uh, I've come from a secular Jewish family, but I got hold of a Bible and started to read the Gospels. I found myself drawn to the person of Christ. I became convinced over time that he was who he said he was. And so I kind of started to ask the question, what would this mean for my sexuality? I went on different Christian websites and blogs, and I was trying to find a way of justifying gay relationships from a Christian perspective. But try as I might, I couldn't. I became convinced that the Bible was clear, the only context for sexual activity was within marriage and marriage between a man and a woman. So I was forced to ask the question, was I willing to give up the possibility of being in a sexual relationship in order to follow Christ? At the time, I didn't really understand the love of Christ, and so I wasn't willing to do so. I, I walked away. And so I went to university, and my life at that time was all about pursuing success, partly so I could go back to my dad and say, even though you don't accept my sexuality, at least accept me because of what I've achieved, partly so I could go back to the people who'd been mean to me about my sexuality and say, ha, I'm better than you. So I went to Oxford University, and I pursued all sorts of different activities, I was running my own business, really as a way of building the perfect CV and uh, then getting the great career and everything else that followed from that. And um, it was in the middle of my second year when I, I looked around my life, I thought I've achieved many of the things that I, I wanted to achieve and yet success hasn't satisfied me in the way that I thought it would. I still feel angry and insecure as ever. And so it was then that I turned to a Christian friend and this Christian friend had just demonstrated the love of Christ to me in a profound way. He had challenged me. I'd even seen him wincing a couple of times at things that I was doing, but he never made me feel judged or excluded. And so when I was at the end of my tether and feeling deeply dissatisfied, I, I prayed with him to receive Christ. And really God took hold of my life in a profound way following that. Um, I realized that following Christ would mean surrendering every part of my life to him, including my relationship. So I made the decision to be celibate and single for the rest of my life. And at the time I was living with six guys um, who were all doing the normal university thing, relationships and everything that comes with that. And they couldn't understand uh, what I was doing. They felt like I would go crazy to deprive myself in this way. A little while later, my brother and his girlfriend pulled me aside and said, you need to embrace your sexuality. You need to uh, live it out. You cannot uh, deprive yourself like this. And um, what's fascinating in a world that idolizes sex and relationships, the people around me just couldn't um, understand the decision to be celibate. And yet those years of single celibacy with Christ were far more satisfying than uh, my life before Christ. So really God took me on a journey of transformation. And this was, I think, ultimately rooted in my experience of the love of my father in heaven. Uh, as I experienced his love, I felt I no longer needed to justify myself through my work and through my achievements. Uh, so I could kind of live a more balanced life. And my housemates were like, who are you? And what have you done with the guy we used to live with? Um, I experienced sanctification in all sorts of ways. I experienced a change in identity. I, I no longer um, identified through the lens of my sexuality because I, I said, well, that the most significant thing about me is that I'm a follower of Christ, that I'm a child of God. And so I just kind of 
myself as a Christian with same-sex attraction. Um, a little while later, and this wasn't something I was pursuing, but I even experienced something of a restoration of my sense of masculinity. I'd always felt like an outsider uh, with other guys, but now I felt like, no, I'm a, I'm a man made in the image of God, uh, designed by him, and, and I actually own my masculinity. Uh, on top of that, I experienced a change in attractions. Uh, I started to experience attraction towards girls in a way that I never had. It was like uh, going through puberty again, um, noticing curves and other things that I hadn't noticed before. Now, I know that when we talk about change in attractions, there'll be some who would um, be very wary because they say that you're aware that there are those who pursued a change in attractions as, as followers of Christ and not experienced that and then felt deeply disappointed, etc., etc. And I, I would share their concerns. Um, I wouldn't promise a change in attractions. But I do think the power of the cross is big enough for, for everything, including our sexual sin and our brokenness. So uh, a little while later, um, I... Um, Five years after coming to Christ, I began a relationship um, with Jen. I was um, very nervous. Jen was basically my first girlfriend, and um, I told her everything, basically, out, and she was amazing about it. God gave her a lot of grace for the healing journey that I'd been on. And um, yeah, well, after a little while, after about uh, a year, we decided that God was calling us to get married, and we recognized that we were attracted to each other and everything else like that. And um, We've been married for, together for about seven years now. We have three children. And without going into too much detail, um, we're married in every sense of the word. Um, as I look back on my life, nearly uh, 15 years after coming to faith, um, I can but marvel at uh, what God has done in my life. And I'm incredibly grateful. Amazing. Yeah, I love that. I think the, band's, um, the band can come up. Um, what I love about that, as, as I say, I mean, I love the fact that we've through our friendship with people across the world, we've got access to stories and people's lives and things like that. Um, but also that just encapsulates so much, I think, of, of the heart and some of the stuff we've chatted around um, this evening. And so we're gonna end here with the final C, which is the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ. And in many ways, this is just a, a call for us to, to worship. And let me say this um, before we before we go through it. Um, for those of you who walked in here, not Christ followers, genuinely exploring, very hostile to what I had to say, I don't know. Um, the invitation for you from Jesus tonight is on the table. Repent and believe, come home to me. I'm your savior, I love you, I died for you. I wanna know you, I wanna walk with you, I wanna journey with you. Whether you've got same-sex attraction or not. Uh, for those of us who are Christ followers, um, the opportunity now is to worship God and just respond to Him in worship and praise. Let's, let's lift our gaze to Him now, consider who He is, and take whatever the questions, wrestles, concerns, next steps, whatever it might be that's going on in you, whether, whether you know, you're same-sex attracted or not, and bring that before God. The one who knows you, the one who loves you, the one who's placed his spirit inside of you, the one who wants to journey with you and change you, the one who's given you a spiritual family that surrounds you. Come and bring all of that now to God. Let's focus on Him just for the next few minutes as we, as we lift our gaze off ourselves and onto God. So let me read this. The cross of Christ, the cross of Christ. Jesus died because He loves people. Jesus died because we are all trapped in sin and have been living against God. 
Jesus died to rescue us from that sin and begin transforming us. Jesus died to kickstart a new creation, a perfect creation, right here in the midst of the old, fallen, broken creation. Right here in the midst of the hearts of those whose bodies still bear the marks of the old creation. And we are increasingly being set apart from the old creation for the new creation. And one day that new creation is gonna encompass the entire cosmos. Sin and death will be removed. Those who don't want God or this new creation with Him will also be removed. And there will be no more tears, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more sin, and there will be no more death. The former things will have been removed. And so as you and I, as we wrestle and we struggle together in this life, that's our final hope. That's our final hope. That's our final destination. And let's remind each other of this. Let's live our lives in light of this. And let's conform one another's minds to this reality as we speak about it to each other every single day. Let's stand and let's worship Jesus with our voices one last time this evening.